Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This conversation is with Nimit Sani, the CEO of Votes, spelled V-O-A-T-Z. Their mission is to truly integrate into the existing rails of voting. So they want to continue to allow people to vote on chain. There's major advantages to this, like not having to disclose your personal identity uh, to people who don't need access to it. We talked about their success so far. They've raised over $10 million. They've done, uh, I believe, over 30 elections, and they're on a roll. It's fascinating to see this company actually exist. This is one of those ideas early on in crypto you think about, you think should exist, and then to see it actually exist in the real world and for voting to be moving on-chain is super exciting. They certainly go through a lot of mud. They have to deal with the existing election systems. Uh, they send RFPs into bids. Uh, you know, They're deeply integrated into the bureaucratic system, but somebody has to. And these guys are doing the dirty work of actually becoming a facilitator of voting's voting infrastructure that is super exciting. So I think it is motivated by cost savings for these organizations that are facilitating the votes, uh, but to have it be on chain is exciting for everybody because it just re-emphasizes the importance and value of having blockchain in the world and in society. So I, I really enjoy the business model. Who knows, maybe in another life, it's something I work on. Uh, here is Nimit Sani the CEO of Votes. All right. Uh, well, I'm excited to be chat with you, Nimit. Um, I love what you're working on. It's an idea that I've heard many people talk about, moving voting uh, on chain and bringing it specifically to mobile. Uh, tell me what inspired this. I know you had competed in a hackathon, won the hackathon, and that was kind of impetus for the project. What, what, but even getting into that, what, and maybe to this day, what carries you, what, what do you sort of see as a future that uh, people can get excited about around voting or maybe something else beyond beyond voting? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Mike, for having me here. So, um, yeah, Origins in this space, as you rightly pointed out, are very accidental. My brother and I were at a hackathon at South by Southwest a few years ago and just happened to participate in this competition where the theme was uh, Hack to the Future. What's the one thing you would do in the future and how would you do it? And they had a Bitcoin as a prize. So this is 2014, you know, pretty hyped days. So it was pretty 
intriguing. We hadn't really dived into blockchain or distributed ledgers in any detail prior to that. So we ended up reading the paper, had to read it a couple of times to fully understand it, and then it kind of made sense in terms of what we were looking at, which was uh, how do you secure you know, data at scale. And so we ended up prototyping and just by chance won the competition. And that led to a series of events and uh, what uh, was born. So my background's in cybersecurity and mobile. So I was kind of in the space, but never really intersected with uh, you know, government or, or voting. So that was a pure accident. And once we got in, it was very fascinating. Like, let's say in the early days, almost 99% of people we spoke to for advice uh, told us not to do it. It was very, very interesting. Like, almost everybody who knew anything about the space said, don't do it. It's the hardest thing you'll end up doing. And um, it's just not worth it. And at the same time, you know, like two minutes later, they'd say something to the effect of, I wish somebody could do it. Yeah. So it's very contradictory advice, contradictory feedback. And, um, and you know, a lot of us, when somebody tells you not to do something, you're kind of more, you know, excited to do it. So we kind of dived in and even till today, <clears throat> there are a lot of critics, there are a lot of skeptics people who believe that the words internet and voting or voting and blockchain should not be used in the same sentence. And um, our focus has been, well, this is a tough space. You got to change people's hearts and minds literally one at a time. And the only way you're going to do it is through data and evidence. And so we've been focused on doing as many elections as we can, building the proof points, showing to people that it actually works. And so, you know, step by step, removing all the all the objections people have. So I think that that's what keeps us going. It's a hard space. It's very challenging. Every election for us is do or die. So there is there is that element that, you know, if you mess up an election, you may not have a company tomorrow. Mm. Um, but so far, that's, that's what keeps us going. And hopefully we can, you know, make, uh, I say, keep pushing the, the ball up the hill. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and tell me, we, let's let's kind of map out what you've accomplished so far. So uh, externally, uh, you've raised about $10 million. You have uh, how many employees, how many people have worked on this? And then how many elections or votes or however you measure progress? So wh- where are you now? <laughs> sure. So we've raised um, about 11.7 million in venture funding. In terms of number of elections, as of last week, we've completed 94 successful back-to-back elections. We've served more than 2 million voters. Um, We predominantly work in the government and the political space. So in the U.S., Five states, 32 counties have used the system. And in the U.S., it's primarily deployed for a small subset of voters, 
who are military voters, citizens who are living overseas, and any voter who has a disability or needs an accommodation. It's not yet available for everybody because of you know regulatory hurdles. But in other countries, such as Canada, where we're just launching and you know other parts of the world it is available to all voters um, we also do political elections or so convention caucuses and then both parties both major parties in the u.s have used our system in six states already so our focus is to build you know bipartisan consensus and then also keep pushing as many government elections as we can do. So we've recently been selected by 15 Canadian cities for their upcoming municipal elections. So we're really excited about it. Wow. And I would imagine that the primary incentive here is the integrity of the vote. Although there are other, I would imagine, non-obvious implications of having kind of a decentralized, mobile-first blockchain voting system. But the the thing that really sparks the conversation, gets people excited is, is this, you know, a super high fidelity system where if you were a company, for instance, and you were building a voting app with your phone, it would be very difficult to p- convince people that you couldn't change the numbers in the database, database, you know, it's, it, people could always question it, but the integrity of the blockchain, you know, as it, as it pertains to voting is so so strong potentially because so many people have placed trillions of dollars on chain and crypto. And so I would imagine that's the, ten- the primary driver. Are there other things, other implications? Like what is the sales process like? How do, do you pitch a politician or, and do you need everyone to get on board? Like what is it like to get this out there and integrated into a vote? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. When we first started pitching this to prospective clients, primarily government officials and you know people in the political space, we would exactly lead off with the way you described, you know, talking about the benefits of using a blockchain-based infrastructure, the immutability of the data, access, so you get more and more people, you know, give them more choice to participate. And Surprisingly for us, because we are all, you know, geeks and technology focused people, it did not resonate. It just fell flat. And so we then realized that the audience we are trying to serve, they don't really care to them. Those are buzzwords. You know, they don't really get excited when somebody says, Oh, it's a blockchain based system. You know? They don't even have. Uh, sometimes they won't even raise an eyebrow. They're like, what, what is that? Mm. Cause you know, they are, they are operating in a different, you know, different area of influence. And so we literally went back to the drawing board and say, what is it that matters to them? And to them, the primary kind of motivation we've seen is cost and efficiency. Mm. Obviously security is top of mind. Um, and then everything else came after that. And so for cost, we, what we ended up doing is we, we would go research the past three to five years of election budgets of our prospective clients because they're all online, fortunately. Uh, thank, uh, uh, FOIA for that. And we, we realized the amount of money that's 
getting spent on conducting elections is enormous. And a lot of it could be saved through efficiencies, which, you know, a system like ours provides both pre-election and on election day as well. And so we kind of changed our pitch to focus on that. Like what's in it for the buyer, which is the election official, right? Because the buyer in our case is not the voter. It's the election official. The voter is the user. Users don't pay. It's the, it's the basically the election administrators who pay. And so once we switched that focus, there was a lot of interest. And now as they've been using the system, they're also excited to learn about, you know, what new things the blockchain brings to the table. So it was very almost, I would say, anticlimactic in that sense that, um, the way we think of the appeal of a system is very different from, you know, people who are actually administering elections and are in the political space. Um, and who is paying for that? a really good learning for us. Like, is that, a, is, that, is that coming out of a fixed budget for a department? And so they really do want to minimize the expense? Or is it kind of like the military budget where, you know, you just find a vendor and it costs what it costs? And how, what is the kind of financial incentive to be effective, efficient? Yeah, it's the former. They have a very fixed amount of budget. Um, they're stretched in different directions. And one of the things which we don't often realize is the system in the U.S. is very unique. So it's one of the few places in the world where the federal government doesn't actually conduct elections. So even when you're voting for president, it's literally 4,000 local elections that are happening, which then, you know, kind of go up, go up the tree. So it's the states, the election um, management is a state subject in the U.S. And even in many states, the states delegated to the local jurisdictions. So you literally have 4,000 jurisdictions across the country who are conducting elections, which is good and bad because you have 4,000 prospective clients versus one client in many countries. Um, some more opportunities to sell and convince. The flip side is it's really hard because you can literally, you know, we've got 32 counties. We just got our 33rd county. It's literally one by one. Like it's, it's hard to, you know, accelerate the speed you might want to. Right. Um, but, um, money stops mind. Uh, a lot of these local jurisdictions don't have a lot of funding. Uh, even though the federal government doesn't conduct elections, a lot of the funding for the elections comes from the federal government. So you can see the conflict. Like they are, you know, they are providing money, but sometimes it comes with, you know, strings attached so they can use it for a system like ours or, you know, they have to get a matching grant from the state if the state's not, not going to provide in many cases. So <clears throat> there's a lot of um, bureaucracy to navigate. And so our focus is how can we minimize their expense so they can use it with the money they have and even save save there a little bit. And so that's that's where we've had a lot of success. Um, if you look at the cost per vote with the the old system, the traditional system, the nationwide cost per vote per election is you know upwards of twenty dollars. Wow. With our system it's between, you know, one and a half to three dollars. So it's a huge difference. And, and the pr 
what's the primary expense there? Is it the facilitation of the in-person voting uh, logistics and and uh, machines, and I would imagine police. That all that is the. Or is there one primary expense, or just all that? Yeah, it's the machines. Then you know, human uh, paper. A lot of paper is you know wasted, unfortunately. Um, then you know, poll workers um, you know, getting the word out. So yeah, it's it's um, it's a very human intensive process. Um, there are some things you can't replace humans with, but there are other places where you know a system like ours can make their lives a lot easier, especially on election day. So one of the things we had to do early on was we had to come up with a deployment approach where we are not asking them to throw away what they have right now because that's pretty much a non-starter for most governments. So the alternative is how can we plug it into what they have and do an incremental change? So that's, that's how we literally started and we're still still doing that um, as far as the U.S. is concerned. So even though you're voting on the phone, your ballots are getting recorded on the blockchain, it still reverse engineers and produces the paper ballot on election mm-hmm. day and that's the paper ballot that's tabulated because all the in-person votes are coming through paper, the postal votes are coming through paper. So that way they don't have extra work on election day. They don't have to reproduce absentee ballots like they used to previously from right. the from the military and you know we're saving them time and effort on election day. So which they really like because then they can focus on other things instead of absentee ballots on election day. So that's I think that's the kind of the insight we've learned by looking at this very unique market. And, and are you logistically, are you uh, allowing people to submit votes on chain and then you're looking at the results and you're just filling out thousands of ballots and mailing them in? <laughs> so, yes. So when you vote on the phone, every oval you mark on your digital ballot gets recorded on the chain as a unique anonymous transaction. And it does have some metadata with it, which is basically your ballot style. So it can reverse engineer your precinct, your election jurisdiction. And then what we get from the jurisdictions are the actual paper ballot, the designs, so the PDFs and the design files. So using the metadata, the anonymous metadata and the oval, we can reverse engineer, recreate the paper ballot. And then a paper ballot is actually printed at the jurisdiction. So you don't have to print and mail it or do anything with it. So it's actually printed at the jurisdiction um, on ballot on demand printers and it's ready for tabulation straight away. Okay. And how does it, how does it go from, so if I'm a user, uh, a voter, I would download the app, uh, vote, cast my vote and that's casted on chain. And from there it's, is there a, you wrote a script to then send an email or or fax or something to the ballot machine? Like, how does the connection point go from the actual vote to the ba- the paper ballot? So the election administrators have access to what's <clears throat> called as an admin console. So they have read-only access to the chain and the data. So they have the list of eligible voters, which they've provided. They have the ballot styles. And then as the transactions start coming in, 
um, they don't have to you know do much. They look at people who voted, which is separate, and then the anonymous ballots. And basically, the system does it for them. So when they click, okay, this ballot's ready for you know download and tabulation. It'll automatically figure out using the metadata what the actual ballot styles is, creates the PDF for them, and then they print it as a batch on their you know printers which they have at their election offices. So it's very streamlined. Previously, what they would have to do is these absentee ballots would come over email or fax. Those ballots are not tabulatable, so somebody would have to hand reproduce these ballots, which means now you have two people you need to check. Plus, the voter has lost his or her anonymity because you know how somebody voted, mm. which is, isn't fair. Um, so this way, they don't have to do any of that. comes to their admin console automatically when they're ready to uh, print and tabulate, which is usually on election night. They just, you know, go through a <clears throat> what's called as administrative election closed procedure. There's a encryption um, key decryption ceremony, and then they get access to the the PDFs and they can print and tabulate straight away. So it's, it's very it. streamlined. They don't have to be. They don't have to know the nitty gritties of the chain to able to be able to interact with it. They being the voter. The the election officials. Okay. Okay. And the other ones were right. Recording. And the election officials would receive just a final count. They'd say, okay, 4,000 people voted in this direction. And then they would record that under the absentee ballot summary as opposed to. So they actually get the full PDFs. So they get the digital, they have access to the the chain data as as a digital transaction log. But they also have the actual PDFs for each individual cast ballot. So they get that full batch, whether it's, you know, 500 or, or 1,000. So they then just print it uh, right there on their in their offices on an on-demand printer. It's all anonymous because, you know, it's all mm-hmm. mixed up. They don't know whose ballot is where. All they know is these were the, you know, 100 or 200 eligible voters um, who were who they had deemed to be eligible to participate. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability, that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. So interesting. I I love this problem, by the way. It's like hearing how you solve these things, because it seems like the 
one of the oldest ideas on blockchain is like, oh, if we could just do voting on chain, but you're actually doing it, which is awesome. Uh, when people submit the vote, it gets recorded by the the, the folks who record the votes, it's uh, accounted for around 4,000 different counties. Each state's responsible. One of the questions I would think has got to be frequent is how do we know double, double vote, right? How do we know you're you? Where, where's, where, how is that? Is that solved a hundred percent or is it you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's, that's a very important um, <clears throat> aspect. So that's why our system is initially available only during the absentee voting phase. And now gradually it's coming available on election day as well. And so what happens is you as a voter have to register <coughs> for absentee voting, which is the norm in most, most states. And you have to register in advance. You then choose a method. Typically it's vote by mail, right? That's the most common method. If you're military or absent or, or disability, uh, status voter, then you would have in the past email and fax as an option as well, where you give up your anonymity. So now you have a, another new option, which is mobile. Um, and if you choose that option, what happens is you then get, um, go through a onboarding process. So you download, you get an invitation, you download the app on your iPhone or Android, you start with your mobile and email. And then you have to do um, what's called as remote ID proofing. So you have to take a picture of a government-issued photo ID, uh, front and back, uh, and a selfie. Um, and so you can use a driver's license, state ID, passport, there are other forms which are accepted as well. And then the reason a selfie is required because that's a liveness check. Make sure you're a real person. You're not taking somebody else's ID and you know, pretending to be somebody else. And then it'll take the data from your ID and match it with the voter file, which the jurisdiction has provided to us. So if everything matches, picture matches, your ID is not expired, you're in the right precinct, etc. Then basically, um, you get approved. Uh, all the documents you've provided and your photo are in, they're deleted within 24 hours for privacy reasons, because they're not stored perpetually. They're not shared with anybody else. And then a digital identifier is stored on your phone identifier. So that ties you to that device for that election because only one person um, can um, um, cast a vote. Yeah, cast a vote on, mm -hmm. on a device. And then um, um, at that point, what happens is you get a notification. You can get your digital ballot. So you mark your ballot um, and you can submit it. And that's when it gets recorded on the chain. You as a voter optionally also have a chance to get a receipt. And so you can, there are different kinds of receipts supported. There's uh, just a confirmation receipt, uh, which basically confirms your ballots received. There's also a visual receipt in some jurisdictions where you can see which ovals you marked on your device and you can do a visual comparison. And then post-election, you can go into the audit system. You can see a picture of the paper ballot, which was scanned, uh, generated and scanned for you. And you can also look at the data on the blockchain, do all the full end-to-end -end comparison. Um, so different options are available different on, depending on the, the rules, rules of the jurisdiction. So Namit, jumping back in here, 
Uh, I find this fascinating because it, uh, unlike other businesses, the devil's in the details way more here. I mean, this is almost like mm-hmm. notoriously difficult devil in the detail problem. Um, you just described how voting is accounted for from the individuals who are casting the vote and how it gets propagated or sent reliably. You talked about the identity val- verification process, which is similar to like a KYC process for other crypto companies. Um, do you have any sense for the like uh, how people would hack that or or trick that if they would? I would imagine if I had an ID that was me, but I you know used to live in an old location. Um, are there any edge cases that, admittedly, it's more difficult to, to verify or do on mobile than it would be in person? Um, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention from the previous uh, question was, as soon as you submit your ballot on the phone, what happens is the jurisdiction also gets a notification that you've submitted your ballot on the, on the mobile. And what happens is the state voter registration gets updated. And so the reason that's really important is to address the question you asked previously, make sure someone can't vote more than once. So once the state voter registration systems are updated, then if you show up to vote in person or if you send in a postal ballot, they will be rejected because you've already asked a ballot. Um, so <clears throat> that's why having those procedures in place is really important because if for some reason the state voter registration is, is not updated and you wait up until election day, then you kind of opening up the loophole. And so that's where we work with the election officials to, to make sure uh, that those procedures are, you know, very, you know, tip top. And coming back to the, <clears throat> to your question about security. So different methods have different risks. Um, when you vote in person, you know, it's a, it's a completely different profile. When you vote by mail, it's a different profile. Similarly, with any you know internet connected technology, <clears throat> the risks are very different. So, one of the risks could be your phone is compromised. Let's say somebody sent you a spurious link on email or text message. You clicked on it. Some now you're, there's malware on your phone, and so that's <clears> the <throat> growing risk. And so, if the malware is is targeted at you know disrupting your usage of the phone then it could be very serious. So what we do is <clears throat> in our application, um, like many other applications, there are a series of checks to make sure your device is not compromised. If your device is compromised, it won't let you vote. Uh, and you have to do a cure process or get a different device. <clears throat> the other threat could be the network. Maybe you're an unsafe Wi-Fi network or an unsafe cellular network where, you know, the data is getting you know, <clears throat> diverted to somewhere else and you know people are trying to snoop in that's why having you know multiple layers of uh, encryption is really important you can't rely on you know ssl https right. anymore you have to have you know second and third layers and so that's that's one way <clears throat> and then the other risks are i mean since you are in a remote scenario Um, much like postal voting, now there is 
some susceptibility to potential coercion because you're not in a polling station, right? Um, what if, you know, a spouse or the family member or somebody else is trying to say, okay, show me your phone or show me your paper ballot, mark it this way. And so <clears throat> that's something which you, education is really important, how to tell people. You can have some technology safeguards, for example, uh, the application can check if you are under duress, can do a challenge response. Um, on the newer, you know, newer phones, it can even, you know, do other signature checks where depending on the angle you're holding the phone at, um, the speed of your, you know, fingers or thumb being used, it could detect if it's the same person or, you know, somebody you signed in, you know, somebody else is trying to, but <clears throat> that's, you know, pretty sort of, I would say, bleeding edge. It's not, it can't stop coercion uh, authoritatively. For that, you know, you have to have different state safeguards, which are like legal safeguards, procedural safeguards. So uh, depending on the method of voting, you look at different kind of risks and then you build mitigations into them. Um, our sort of thesis on, on the mobile side is previously based on online infrastructure architectures, which exist in the past, if you manage to get into the server or in the database, you could then manipulate the whole election, right? So that possibility now with this new architecture is gone. There's no way you can attack a single point of failure and disrupt the whole election or change all the data because that's right. it's virtually impossible. So your only point of attack, you know, besides doing a, you know, <clears throat> massive DDoS attack, which di disrupts the, the internet in the whole country, you have to attack each device individually. Right. And so breaking into one device, maybe if you worked at it over a period of months, you could get in, but you can't do it for millions of devices at the same time, right? The cost of doing that hack is so much higher now than it was, you know, a few years ago uh, because of all this new technology that's come in. And so... <clears throat> um, Human beings are still the weakest link. So if, you know, somebody sends you a bad link, you click on it, your device is compromised. That's, you know, that's still, still a big risk. So we're constantly educating, constantly building more features into the app so it can detect, you know, those scenarios and then stop you from voting. Make sure you clean up your device, right. go through a pure process. So it's, <clears throat> it's nothing's foolproof, but it's, it's a lot better than it was a few years ago. Yeah, Ben, Ben, don't break. Uh, it would I would imagine that people individually and then systemically as a society are okay with that. You know, they say, hey, look, like I'll take the convenience of being able to vote on my phone on chain as long as I know that maybe, you know, some uh, you know, husband is filling out the voter registration for his wife. And like, like, but that stuff happens already, right? Like, I mean, right. how often, I would imagine ma massive percentage of the time, like one person's kind of ambivalent. They're like, oh, I don't care who's going to be governor. And the other person's like, oh, it has to be, the, you know, I really want this person. So there's coercion, like this is as old as time. So I think that is, that the 
it definitely isn't that, a problem technology can solve. Right, 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 right. Exactly. That's a human. Uh, I didn't. I don't know necessarily if I'd call that a flaw, but it's like, yeah, sure. You you really influence your family on how you vote. You might even say, hey, give me that piece of paper. I'm going to vote for you. Um, then there's the, hey, I'm going to I'm going to attack this person with some sort of digital attack or link or something. And as long as you can contain that, like if somebody hacked your Wi-Fi or something, they got it. Like I can't imagine anyone would have. There's really no incentive for any individual, like what organization or in, even individual is going to spend the time to hack your Wi-Fi network just to get one vote. I mean, there, there's just exactly. never, I would imagine it only ever makes sense if there's pools, like maybe everyone's a, at a Wi-Fi, but, but people don't vote at the same time or even the same place digitally that's the beautiful part about it is like you don't have a you have an extended window to vote yeah right so you don't really know when people are doing it um and i would imagine the only real threat here from a digital attack is going to be something systemic like somehow i get access to all the phone numbers of all the voters and i blast them with this message and you know they click on the link they think they're voting but they're not actually voting so then you know you like there's some i would imagine there's some of that but either way like blockchain has to be much better just from not having that centralized point. Um, and even in that scenario, that would be a massive compromise, right. which me- right. basically would mean they would have compromised the mobile operators, you know, the government's right. database, everything, which is, you know, not impossible, but it's really hard to do all of that and remain undetected because somebody would catch you. You can't just, you know, mm-hmm. break into everybody like that because uh, there's no single point of, you know, failure anymore. That's that's really important. And to do it, like you said, one by one is very costly. Like you, you're fine. It's, it's probably easier for you to spread misinformation on Twitter than to try breaking into thousands or millions of And I would imagine it's probably a different scenario in countries so where the voting efforts are consolidated. So in a way, it's less efficient in the U.S., but it's, it's more resilient. You know, you can't just hack one system and hack the whole voting network. Are, are you, what other countries are you, you mentioned Canada. Uh, what other countries and to what extent have you been able to gain adoption? And how are you sort of thinking about it too? Like, like, is it smaller countries? Is it more turbulent, volatile countries? How do you think about expanding internationally? Yeah, we've given our small size. So we're very small. We're still 12 people. So we can't, um, can't go into every country out there. We just wouldn't be able to support them. So our focus has been, let's, Look at it from a regulatory perspective. Where are the laws friendly? Where there's willingness to try something new like this, you know, experiment and, you know, then take it forward. And where is there like a human rights perspective? Like there's a dire need because there's no, literally no other way to vote for, for people. And so we've kind of picked, uh, picked a few like that. So one good example is in, um, Towards the end of 2020, we were in the midst of COVID. We did a, a big referendum in South America, in Venezuela. So Venezuela at the time had two governments. There was the incumbent Maduro government, and then there was another government um, led by Juan Guaido, who was widely 
accepted as the legitimate government by you know the US, EU, most countries around the world. And so the Guido government conducted this global referendum where any Venezuelan living in the country as well as you know diaspora could vote. And um, that was a very interesting, it's by far a most challenging election. We had about 1.7 million people use the system, and there were <clears throat> massive attempts to disrupt the system because obviously one side did not want anything like that to happen, and you know, wow. everything we were able to, you know, the system survived, worked worked really well, and yeah, the we, we literally I think most of our team didn't sleep for five days. The election went over five days. And one of our <clears throat> motivations was like, there are people who are actively trying to prevent these people from vote, from voting, right? For whatever reason, <clears throat> we have to <clears throat> do our best to make sure that doesn't happen. <clears throat> so give them a chance to, you know, if their local ISP is compromised or the local phone network is compromised, like we had alternatives and backups for, for everything. We literally were rerouting SMS from from the UK back into Venezuela because they had blocked all incoming from from the US. So there was a lot of it was very fun. It was very stressful, but it kind of a lot of the motivation was, was from that human rights perspective. Like this is this is not right. Like you have to you have to have a fair contest where at least everybody has has an opportunity. So that was a big driver. Uh, you compare that to, let's say, Canada. Canada is, you know, one of the leaders in terms of online voting because, especially in Ontario at the municipal level, their um, their laws are friendly. They've they've pioneered what we call a traditional online voting, where you go to a website and vote for almost almost a decade now. They're right behind Estonia, which is kind of the leader in, in the world, and so those. Getting opportunities to work in those environments is very refreshing because then you can really, you know, push things to the limit. You can really innovate faster than we can do in the in the U.S. because there's so many systemic hurdles. And so, and, and what's what, what's the incentive there? Like, why, why does Canada want to use a decentralized voting mechanism when they already have an online system that works? So. We, when we bid for the elections, these recent elections, we bid as an online voting provider with the differentiation that it's got, you know, a ledger-based approach, as a mobile app, there's additional security. And so that kind of made a difference for the, the bids we were, we were able to win as, as a new entrant. Their biggest motivation to use online voting is cost. Because these municipalities don't have the money to buy machines to do these elections every two years or every four years. And they just don't have the budgets. And they don't get <clears throat> ad hoc funding from the federal government like happens in, in the U.S., you know. Um, so they're literally on their own. They have to find efficiencies. And uh, online voting for them has proved to be very, very efficient. And so now they are taking it because they've already had that experience. They also are some of them who are kind of the leaders in the space. They even have the willingness to try something new, like a system like ours, which is very refreshing because usually governments aren't risk takers, right? You don't mm. find many governments wanting to take risks 
Here you have a group of forward-looking officials who realize the risks of, you know, different methods of voting and are, are willing to, you know, experiment, be kind of the world leaders and, you know, set, set a sort of a marker for the rest of the world. So I think finding those opportunities is, is incredibly exciting, just like the human rights aspect is also very powerful for us. I think we kind of try and pick those because we yeah. can't go after every country in the world right now. We're just too small. And what is, what is it worth? I mean, so so Montreal, Montreal was it or Toronto? <clears throat> so Montreal is in uh, is in uh, Quebec. So these okay. elections we are doing are primarily in uh, Ontario. So there are fifteen. Okay, Ontario this is the biggest. So Ontario says, "Hey, we we have an online system. It seems to be pretty efficient, but we're putting out a bid for a new system." And you guys submit a bid. What what is the typical bid size? Like five million, two hundred thousand. So, so these bids were not conducted by Ontario, the province. They were individually conducted by the, the municipalities themselves. So like, you know, the city of Kingston, the city of Burlington, you know, they all do their own bids. And the reason they do their own bids is um, the RFP cycle typically goes, you know, two to four years. So the last time they would have done this would be in 2017 for the 2018 elections. And so usually they will not commit to a long-term engagement unless they really, really like the system. If they really like the system, then there's no need for them to change. So clearly a lot of the jurisdictions were looking for something better. And so they put out these bids. And so we had an opportunity to bid. The, The size of the contract typically depends on the population. So if it's, you know, if it's a city of a hundred thousand people versus city of five thousand people, you know, it's going to be quite a bit different. Um, so, because at the end of the day, the pricing comes down to a price per voter per election. Um, so you'd be roughly, you mentioned three dollars per vote. So a hundred thousand people would be like a roughly three hundred thousand dollar bid. Yeah, something in that ballpark. Sometimes we provide, you know, kind of, you know, discounts for you know long term engagements and in that mm. case the price might be you know a little bit little bit less. Sometimes they want additional things which are not part of our standard. Like they want a hybrid election, which is they're doing online with us, but they're also doing in person voting uh, with you know right. traditional election company. And so we need to integrate those two. So that's extra effort because typically the paper ballot results, paper ballot data does not end up on a blockchain infrastructure, right? So hmm. whether you want that to happen or you just want the results to be consolidated, so the pricing could change. But at the end of the day, it kind of boils down to what's the cost per voter per election. And that's that's where we have an edge because it's it's very different, much cheaper than, you know, in-person voting postal mail voting and also in in many cases cheaper than traditional online voting because mm-hmm. of the the optimizations we are able to do yeah. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Super interesting. And and do you see like long term, say fast forward t- 10, 20, 25 years is I would imagine there's still an in-person voting option. People always just want to have that there. There's going to be a default blockchain option for people on mobile, which is going to be, I'm guessing, 95 plus percent of people. And then there is probably, I would imagine, an increase in the number of things that you could vote on. So if you had way more efficient voting, well, maybe governments have more uh, types of things that they get feedback from from their constituencies. You know, maybe they ask them like, you know, what do you think about this garbage truck company versus this garbage truck company? Or, or have you thought about the ways that the engagement or the communication layers between citizens and politicians changes when you have a really efficient, uh, decentralized, trustworthy? um app like this yeah no that's that's a that's a fascinating um aspect to explore um so firstly on the choice like you like you rightly said i think giving voters the choice on the different methods of voting is really really important i don't think you want to force anybody to vote on the phone or vote by mail or vote by person vote in person I think those are going to be the three three main choices people are going to have eventually. And you still have an option to vote, although as more and more people shift, the number of locations might might decrease, as is happening in you know in some other parts of the world. Um, postal will be around, and then for people who are technology friendly, they can use you know your phone or your tablet to participate as well. And then as more and more people start to participate you're right engagement with the government more frequent engagement because traditional elections because of the complexity of management and um, um, you know the time it takes to set up things they they don't happen every month right in the u.s we have maybe a couple elections in a year there's a special maybe there's a there's a general at the end of the year in you know, non-midterm or non-presidential years, uh, other countries, it's, it's even less frequent. Uh, but with a system like this, you can poll people on a monthly basis and say, how, yeah. how are we spending our money? Do you want this to, do, this to happen or that to happen? And you can really, really get people engaged on legislative, you know, civic activities. So that's starting to happen. There's a very interesting project which is is going to kick off in in Florida uh, if you like to check it out it's called voting rights brigade and so this is a nonprofit that is trying to get people to engage on bills in the state legislature and so as bills are coming in um, you can give your feedback whether you support the bill or not and you can also I speak. love that idea so I think more and more people, as, as it gets easier and more accessible, you're right, governments, even political parties, 
other groups will start to see the power of that engagement, localized engagement, more frequent engagement, and you know that I think that's good for society as a whole. What, what do you think about this idea? What if you said, uh, okay, because what you're effectively building is a social network, like uh, you're eff- effectively building a localized, decentralized tr- Twitter, where you're saying, okay, we want all these people to give communication. And currently, your current product says it's one-way communication, right? You all submit, nobody else knows who's, who submits. But I can't, I could see a scenario where you create a interface that allows people to create a profile, validate that they are in that constituency, whether it's a county or state or whatever it is, and then participate uh, either, you could be anonymous, or you could be who you say you are, just like on Twitter. But we know for a fact, you are in that constituency. Because I think right now, one of the challenges is that politicians are getting uh, really noisy signal, uh, because they're using Twitter, you know, they're saying, Okay, what are people caring about what's happening in the world? And the signal that they're getting is like email inbound, Twitter, maybe media or some other social media, but they're not sure like how many people are talking about this from within their city or their state. And I could see this being like, hey, I know for a fact everyone here lives in the city. So we're not we're not inviting in outside opinions, and th- it could be more constructive. You could have like uh, debates where people you could take the the council process, you know, like town hall where people go and they debate things. You could move that here. You could say, well, why is that still in person? Because the only people who go to that are like old people who are retired, and right. I, I don't even know. But it's like every people want to be engaged. We want to have a strong signal from the individual to the collective, but it's simply not. Uh, it's, it feels like voting is, is like one, it's like, it's like one indicator of the method through which the individual contributes their intellectual responsibility to the collective. And, but it can be so much, it is more than that, but it can be so much more than that on chain. And I think the interaction, both casually town halls, um, like those things are, is really interesting. And I think, I think people would really find that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a funny, funny incident which happened to us uh, on that earlier this year. So the local local engagement aspect is is so powerful. So late late last year, we had an outreach from a group of citizens from Switzerland, and so Switzerland, as you might know, has a very localized form of government, and they vote a lot. Like they literally vote on everything. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very, you know, very much like a town meeting because they have so many small cantonal governments around the country. And so these group of citizens were really, really upset because at their previous meeting, um, which is a town of about 7,000 people, just about a couple of hundred people showed up, mostly elderly people. And they had two important things to vote on. One was a multi-million franc renovation of the local church and then there was another one uh, 800,000 franc uh, allocation for a climate focused project and so the church renovation got approved the climate wow. project did not get approved and so these young people are very upset nobody well okay we have respect for the church but you know the church did yeah, not, not need yeah. that yeah. renovation. It was a nice to have, whereas the climate arguably was a was a dire need. And so they were like, we need more people to participate in this mm. local form of government where they're literally making decisions about 
how the town or the city is going to spend millions of francs every year. And um, we have no way because people are not going to show up to these monthly meetings, which usually happen in the evenings. Yeah. Um, and so, so... So are you guys live there? So we... We've started to engage with them and, and hopefully we get, get some new, new clients in uh, Switzerland. Uh, and so we're, we're tackling that problem where they can even stream the, the meeting, the council meeting or the time meeting on the ballot, literally. And as the, the voting, um, time comes, because they are viewing the stream, they are technically in the meeting. Nobody should have an objection whether they are in person or, or remote because they're already verified. So they've kind of satisfied the criteria of attending the town meeting. And, you know, so that's, I think that could be a really, really interesting uh, catalyst. But, but you're right. I think it's, it's, uh, it's such an untapped area. It could be, it could be huge. Super interesting. Maybe next door I'll acquire you guys. Uh, <laughs> Nimi, where, <laughs> where are you writing online? Are you active on Twitter, anywhere else, anywhere you want to throw out personally? Yeah, I have a <clears throat> little presence on, on Twitter. I don't write too much. Uh, so our company account is, is, is votes, V-O-A-T-Z, and my personal account is uh, it's my last name spelled in reverse, so Y-E-N-H-W-A-S. Um, mm. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, cool. But, uh, yeah, very focused on making sure we do these elections right and... Um, you know, keep building those proof points so yeah. that you know people don't have a don't have any more excuses not to use a system like this. Yeah, I love it. Super interesting. I, one of the most interesting companies I, I've talked to. So I appreciate your time today, and uh, yeah, wish you the best. I hope you guys you know are all over the place soon enough. Uh, so thanks for coming on today, man. No, thank you. Thank you for having me as well. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 